approaches from the West, which threatens the Mughal Empire and creates an opportunity for the Sikhs. Before we begin the episode, we have a favor to ask of you. If you find this work compelling, please be sure to rate it and write a short review. That will definitely help us get the podcast to a wider audience. I also wanted to share some exciting news with you. If you've enjoyed the rich musical offerings in our episodes, check out our new endeavor, the Gurmit Sangeet Podcast. In Ode to Six Sacred Music, the podcast is a curated introduction to some of the finest live recordings in the genre. In 1688, the same year that Guru Gobind Singh battled the hill chiefs at Bangani, a poor peasant named Imam Kuli Beg and his pregnant wife of the nomadic Afshar tribe were in the middle of their winter migration. Their summer grazing grounds were in Kubgan, and the tribe spent the winter in the village of Dastajird in the province of Khorasan. The Afshars were descended from Afshar, grandson of the legendary ancestor of the Turks, Oz, and had been living in Khorasan for almost 200 years. In Dastajird, Imam Kuli Beg's wife delivered a healthy boy who was named Nadar Kuli Beg. Imam Kuli Beg was a poor shepherd, and the boy growing up lived a tough life, tending to the family's flock as they moved between Kubkan and Dastajird every year. In 1704, the Uzbeks raided Khorasan, devastated many tribal encampments, slaughtering many Afshars and carrying off the others as captives. Among the captives were the teenaged Nadar Kuli Beg and his mother. The lad's mother died in captivity, but he escaped in 1708 and entered the service of Baba Ali Beg Ahmadulu, an Afshar chief and the governor of the town of Abivard. Brave and intelligent, the young man soon became the commander of his master's guards and then his son-in-law. After the death of his first wife, he married her sister Gohar Shad, with whom he had two sons, Nasrullah and Imam Kuli. When his father-in-law died in 1723, Nadar Kuli Beg inherited his property but not his title and left for the city of Mashad to enter the service of its governor, Malik Mahmud. The Safwid dynasty, which had ruled Iran for more than 200 years, was in decline, and the Shah Sultan Hussein was a weak man. Khorasan was dominated by two tribes, the Ghizlais of Kandahar and the Abdalis of Herat, both of which had rebelled against the Shah. In 1722, Mahmud Hotaki of the Ghizlai tribe defeated and deposed Sultan Hussein and became the ruler of Iran. 
An ambitious man, Nadir Kuli Beg, allied with two Afshar chiefs at Mashhad and made an abortive bid to depose and kill Malik Mahmud. When the plot failed, Nadir Kuli Beg was forced to flee and collecting a band of desperados about him, he started to raid and pillage across Khorasan. The son of the deposed Safwid Shah now declared himself Shah Tahmasp II, forming an alliance with Fateh Ali Khan, the leader of the Qajar tribe. Unable to oust Mahmud from the capital Isfahan, he made the city of Tabriz his headquarters. Nadir Kuli Beg, intent on ousting Malik Mahmud, had several confrontations with him, which brought him to the attention of Shah Tamas II, who had also made attempts to defeat the governor of Mashhad. Tamas appointed Nadir as the deputy governor of Abiward, and he quickly rose to become one of the Shah's closest advisors and a rival of the Qajar chief Fateh Ali Khan. Tamas was a weak man with powerful courtiers, and there was constant jockeying for position amongst his advisors, who feared both Nadir and Fateh Ali Khan. In 1726, Nadir managed to convince the Shah that Fateh Ali Khan was plotting against him with Malik Mahmud and get him executed. Nadir Kuli Beg was now the principal advisor to Tahmasp and was honored with the titles Kurchi Bashi or Master of Ordnance and Tahmasp Kuli, Slave of Tahmasp. By the end of the year, Nadir defeated Malik Mahmud and took Mashhad for his master. The next year, Nadir clashed with the Abdali Afghans at Sangan who fed to their stronghold in Herat. The Abdalis had thrown off Persian control and had become as powerful as the Ghislais who controlled the capital Isfahan. Another knew that it was important to subdue them. The Abdali chiefs who were, however, constantly engaged in infighting, patched up their differences and ready to take Nadir on. Nadir and Tahmasp marched upon the Abdalis in May 1729 and defeated them after several pitched battles. One of the prominent Abdali chiefs, Allah Yar Khan, submitted to Tahmasp and was appointed governor of Herat. Several young Abdali fighters entered the ranks of Nadir's army. Mahmud Hotaki had been deposed by his cousin Ashraf Hotaki, who now sat on the throne of Persia at Isfahan. Nadir, ready to take on Ashraf Hotaki, made an agreement with Tahmas. He would drive the Ghislais out of Persia, and after Tahmas took back Isfahan, Nadir would be appointed governor of the provinces of Khorasan, Kimran, and Mazandaran. The Persian army of Tahmas ben Nadir met the Afghan forces of Ashraf Hothaki on 29 September 1729. According to Dr. Lawrence Lockhart, author of Nadir Shah, unstinted praise must be accorded to Nadir not only for his generalship and bravery during the battle, but also for his careful training of the troops beforehand and his strict enforcement of discipline. The effects of Nadir's training 
and his leadership were in fact almost miraculous. Instead of flying at the mere sight of an Afghan, the Persians not only stood their ground without flinching, but proved more than a match for their redoubtable adversaries. Like Cromwell and other great commanders, Nader, besides having supreme faith in himself, had the gift of inspiring in others implicit confidence in his leadership. Shah Tahmasp II triumphantly entered Isfahan, the capital city of his forefathers, on November 16, 1729, seven and a half years after the Safavids had been ousted by the Ghislais. Even though Tahmasp sat on the throne, Nader, the very visible architect of the triumph, gained significant power and prestige. Soon, Tahmasp was the Shah only in name, with Nader calling the shots and appointing key advisors. Nader, growing in confidence, married Radhiya Begum, one of the Shah's sisters, without his consent, and betrothed his son to another sister of the Shah's. In early 1730, Nader Kuli Beg contacted Muhammad Shah, the Emperor of Delhi, for the very first time. Planning to march on the Afghans, he sent Ali Mardan Khan Shamlu, an emissary, to the court of Muhammad Shah, announcing the ascension of Tahmasp to the throne in Isfahan. He also asked Muhammad Shah to close his western borders and deny passage to any Afghan refugees fleeing Nader's armies during the upcoming campaign. Nader's western campaigns and his military successes against Turkey, which had been at odds with Persia for centuries, are beyond the scope of this work. It is important to note that in 1732, Nader turned his focus eastwards again, and by February 1732, he had crushed the power of the Abdalis in Herat. Nader, who by then had the reputation of being a hard man, showed uncharacteristic clemency to the defeated Abdalis. More than 60,000 Abdalis were moved to Khorasan, creating for Nader the nucleus of a non-Persian army that was loyal to him. Afghan power had mostly been crushed. The Ghislais had been ejected from Isfahan, and the Abdalis had been defeated in Herat. Kandahar, which was under Ghislai control, was the last remnant of Afghan power. In 1731, Tahmasp had started a disastrous campaign against the Turks, which resulted in defeat and the loss of several territories that Nader had captured. Nader rejected a humiliating treaty that Tahmasp had signed with the Turks and traveled to Isfahan to meet with the Shah. The Shah summoned all the nobles of his court and arranged a bacchanal that lasted for three days, featuring musicians and entertainers, during which wine flowed freely. Nader called a great conference, or kingash, of all the tribal leaders and elders, in which he declared the unsuitability of Shah Tamasp, displaying him in a drunken state. Tahmasp was deposed, and his infant son Abbas was elevated to the throne as Abbas III, 
with Nader as regent. Nader relinquished the title of Tamas Pukuli Khan and took on the new title Vakil Dola. Once again, an emissary, Muhammad Ali Khan, was dispatched to the court of Muhammad Shah in Delhi and the request made earlier to close the border and deny entry to Afghan refugees was reiterated. In January 1736, Nader, on the heels of another victorious campaign against the Turks, convened a Kurultai, or National Council, to which were invited provincial governors, army commanders, nobles, tribal leaders, and clergy. After a lot of public drama, in which Nader expressed great reluctance to become the new Shah, the Kurultai unanimously elevated him to the Persian throne. A fatwa or declaration to that effect was issued, and on March 8, 1736, Nader Kuli Beg became Nader Shah, the Emperor of Persia. Muhammad Shah had been the emperor of Mughal India for 17 years when Nader Shah ascended the Persian throne. The Mughals of India, like the Safwids of Persia, had seen their power erode because of a parade of weak monarchs who followed each other in succession. In a previous episode, we have already delved into the sorry state of Muhammad Shah's court, in which several factions had been jockeying for power. Nizamul Mulk Asaf Jah, perhaps the most capable Mughal nobleman of his time, who had briefly served as vizier, had already returned to the Deccan and had established a quasi-independent kingdom there. South of the Narmada River, another formidable power had been rising as the Mughal Empire declined. The Marathas occupied a triangular tract of land that stretched from Surat in modern-day Gujarat to Nagpur in the west and then down to Goa to its southwest, also on the coast. The Maratha leader Shivaji had been a constant thorn in the side of Aurangzeb, the great-grandfather of Muhammad Shah, who had been the last great Mughal emperor. Shivaji, born into the Bhosle clan in 1617, was destined to become one of the most dominant Maratha monarchs. An extraordinary leader, he ruled over a large kingdom by the time of his death in 1680. He was succeeded by his son Sambaji, who was captured and executed by Aurangzeb in 1689. 
His eight-year-old son, Sahuji, was taken captive and was brought up by the Mughals. In the meantime, the Marathas continued to resist the Mughals under the leadership of Raja Ram, Sambhaji's stepbrother until 1700, and then under his widow Tarabai after his death. When Aurangzeb died in 1707, Sahuji was still in Mughal captivity. Sahuji was freed in 1707, and the following year he claimed the Maratha throne, though his conflict with Tarabai continued. In 1713, a Brahmin named Balaji Vishwanath was appointed his Peshwa or Prime Minister. In 1720, Balaji Vishwanath was succeeded by his son Bajirao as Peshwa, who actively sought to expand Maratha power north of the Narvada River, recognizing the opportunity presented by the weakening of the Mughal Empire. Over the next few years, the Marathas managed to partly occupy Gujarat and overrun Malwa, which encompassed parts of the modern-day Madhya Pradesh and the southeastern parts of Rajasthan. As the Marathas grew bolder, they started venturing beyond Malwa and raiding the country almost all the way to Agra. Muhammad Shah tried to get various chiefs to deal with them, but none of them took the field against the Marathas, offering some excuse or the other. The frustrated emperor decided to personally confront the Marathas in 1733, but didn't venture more than 16 miles beyond Delhi. The vizier, Kamaruddin Khan, decided to step in and lead the campaign against the Marathas. However, they had crossed the Narmada again, and the vizier was recalled to Delhi by the emperor. The next year, the Marathas returned, bolder than ever, and ravaged the land from Gwalior to Ajmer, a distance of more than 200 miles. Raja Jaising, who ruled over these lands, paid the Marathas off rather than confronting them, as he had been doing with the approval of the emperor over the years. This was despite the fact that the Raja had a standing army of more than 30,000 horsemen and an even larger number of matchlock men. He found it much more rewarding to extort 2 to 3 million rupees from the emperor, ostensibly to pay the Marathas to keep the peace. He would pocket half the sum and give the rest to the Marathas. As the Marathas rampaged through Mughal territory, the emperor spent time visiting gardens in the city of Delhi and hunting. His vizier retreated to his country estate about 12 miles from Delhi and spent several weeks at a stretch there hunting deer or fishing. State business would come to a halt and the empire would practically be left without a government for long periods of time. One of Muhammad Shah's main advisors, Samsao Dawla, was sent to deal with the Marathas. After he spent months making preparations, the Marathas retreated south of the Narmada again. Two of Peshwa Bajirao's very capable lieutenants, Malhar Rao Holkar and Ranuji Sindhya, started to rise in prominence. After several inconclusive battles, Muhammad Shah was persuaded in 1736 to relinquish Malwa and appoint 
Peshwa Baji Rao as deputy governor under Raja Jaising. The Peshwa, accompanied by Ranuji Sindhya, Malar Rao Holkar, Jaswantrao Puar and his son, met with Raja Jaising to negotiate the terms. By the time the negotiations were concluded, the Peshwa had won control not only over Malwa, but also Allahabad, Benares, Gaya, and Mathura. In addition, he claimed perpetual rights over the six provinces of the Deccan as the Sardesh Pandya, giving him 5% of its annual revenues. The emperor also had to pay close to 3 million rupees per annum for the Marathas to guarantee the security of the areas they administered. Such was the sorry state of the Mughal Empire in 1736. In November 1736, Nadir Shah left Isfahan at the head of a force 80,000 strong, mostly consisting of cavalry to seize Kandahar from the Ghislais. The siege of Kandahar began in late February 1737. The city was well nigh impregnable, protected by the Kethul Ridge on the northwest and by mud walls 30 feet thick, reinforced with straw and stones. Several Ghislais fled northwards towards Mughal-controlled regions of Afghanistan to flee Nadir Shah's forces. The Shah sent a force to Ulang Muragha, the last outpost on the Persian-Mughal frontier, to bar their path. About a thousand Ghislais were killed, but many of them fled towards Ghazni and Kabul, which lay in Mughal territory. Nadir Shah's generals pursued them to the border and not finding any Mughal officials there were unable to stop the fleeing Ghislais. Hugely irritated by the incident and anticipating that more Ghislais would try to flee as the siege continued, Nadir Shah sent Muhammad Khan Turkoman, a former Safwid general, in May 1737 as an emissary to the court of Muhammad Shah to reiterate his demand that the border be closed. Muhammad Shah Turkoman was given strict orders to stay no more than 40 days in Delhi. The siege of Kandahar dragged on despite some limited successes that Nadir Shah's forces saw. Most notably, they were able to bombard parts of the Kandahar fort, particularly a tower in the southwest of the city known as Burje Dada. In March 1738, Nadir Shah was approached by a man named Dayad Khan who had served the Ghislai ruler of Kandahar, Shah Hussain. Dayad Khan, who offered to enter Kandahar on a reconnaissance mission, reported that the defenders had enough food to last four years and the walls had not been damaged at all. He suggested that Nadir Shah attack on a Friday when most of the defenders would be at prayer and recommended that the Burje Dada and the lines behind it, being the most vulnerable, be targeted. 
A crack team drawn from volunteers was assembled for the assault. Nadir Shah promised each of the men a thousand rupees as well as the right to plunder once the city fell. He also issued an ominous threat. Anyone who retreated would be beheaded. The troops took up their positions on Friday night and attacked early in the morning, rushing forward with scaling ladders and placing them against the Burje Dada. They took heavy casualties but captured the tower and pressed on, pushed back into the fort's citadel and faced with Nadir Shah's heavy artillery, Shah Hussein surrendered, sending his sister Zainab, accompanied by several Ghislai chiefs, to ask for mercy. Shah Hussein and his family were spared, but imprisoned. In prison in Kandahar, Nadir Shah found one of his former Abdali foes, Dhulfiqar Khan, and his 15-year-old brother, Ahmed. He treated the Abdali brothers with great kindness and sent them to Mazandaran. Nadir Shah, having vanquished both the Abdalis and the Ghislais, had won back all the territories that had been lost to the Afghans as the Safavid Empire had declined. As Nadir Shah was going from strength to strength, the Marathas were becoming increasingly audacious. After signing the treaty with Muhammad Shah, Baji Rao entered Malwa in early 1737 accompanied by his top lieutenants. A whirlwind campaign was planned which Malhar Rao Holkar spearheaded through Bundelkhand which falls in modern-day Madhya Pradesh. Baji Rao and Ranuji Sindhya followed at a slower pace to provide support. After the Marathas had sacked Badavar and decamped with much plunder, the Emperor Muhammad Shah deputed the governor of Awadh, Sadat Khan, and the vizier Kamaruddin Khan to deal with the Marathas. Sadat Khan engaged the Maratha vanguard close to Agra and overwhelmed it, causing it to flee. Thinking that he had defeated the main Maratha force, he sent word of his great victory to the emperor, who responded by heaping him and his officers with honors and expensive gifts. While the combined forces of Sadat Khan and the vizier were celebrating, encamped at Mathura, Bajirao was making plans. In the New History of the Marathas, Volume 2, Govind Sardesai documents this letter sent by Bajirao to his brother in March 1837. Sadat Khan sent a false report to the emperor that he had defeated the main Maratha army, slaughtered 2,000, and drowned another 2,000 in the Jamuna. 
He also reported that Malharji Holkar and Vitoji Bule were killed and that he had repelled the so-called furious onslaught of Bajirao. The emperor was so highly gratified with this news that he sent him hearty congratulations with dresses and a pearl necklace, elephants and other gifts. My agent, Dhondo Govind, sent me frequent messages with correct news of these transactions at the emperor's court. You know how hollow are the professions of these Mughal grandees. I therefore decided to teach the emperor a wholesome lesson by letting him know that Holkar and Bule were still alive. Two ways were open to me. To attack Sadat Khan and destroy him, or fall upon Delhi itself and burn its outlying parts. But Sadat Khan would not venture out from Agra, so I took the latter course. The Peshwa marched upon the Mughal capital and set up camp just nine miles from the Red Fort. In Bajirao's own words, In two long marches, I reached Delhi on the 28th and encamped outside the city. I gave up the idea of setting fire to the adjoining suburbs, considering it a sacrilege to commit such a wanton outrage upon an ancient city. March 29 happened to be the day of Lord Ram's birth, for which celebrations were going on in the city, when we created a sensation by falling upon the crowds and carrying away some light plunder. This was enough to strike terror. The news reached the emperor, who on 30th March sent his agent to me with a request that I should send back Dhondo Govind, I sent word saying that an escort may be sent for Dhondo Govind's safe journey through the infuriated crowds of the city. In the meanwhile, to allay the scare created by our presence, we withdrew to a position away from the city and formed our camp at the Jeel Lake. As we started back, a force of about 8,000 was dispatched by the emperor to drive us away. Our Sardars... Holkar, Sindhya, and the Pawar brothers once again faced them gallantly and inflicted upon them a crushing defeat. On learning that the main Mughal force had got wind of the attack and was marching back to Delhi, Bajirao took his force and fled to the safety of Gwalior. Meanwhile, in the Punjab, Nawab Zakaria Khan's repression continued unabated. In the words of Ratan Singh Pangu, Satra se pachanave Khan Bahadur Nabab, Unbo Dukh Singandayo, Papi Bado Kharab, Mani Singh Jab Mareo, Band Band Tise Katae, Or Singh Te Jo Mare, 
ਇੱਕੋ ਸਭ ਸਕੇ ਗਿਨਾਏ ਕਈ ਚਰਖ ਕਈ ਫਾਸੀ ਮਾਰੇ ਕਈ ਤੋਪਣ ਕਈ ਛੁਰੀ ਕਟਾਰੇ ਕਈਆਂ ਕੇ ਸਿਰ ਮੁਗਲੀ ਕੁੱਟੇ ਕਈ ਡੋਬੇ ਕਈ ਘਸੀਟ ਸੁੱਟੇ ਦੱਬੇ ਟੰਗੇ ਬੰਦੂਖਣ ਦੇ ਮਾਰ ਕੌਣ ਗਣੇ ਜੇ ਮਾਰੇ ਹਜ਼ਾਰ ਪਾਤ ਪਾਤ ਕਈ ਪਕੜ ਬਹਾਏ ਸਾਥ ਤੇ ਗਨ ਕੇ ਸੀਸ ਉੜਵਾਏ ਕਿਸੇ ਹੱਥ ਕਿਸੇ ਟੰਗ ਕਟਵਾਏ ਅੱਖ ਕੱਢ ਕਿਸੇ ਖੱਲ ਕਟਵਾਏ ਕੇਸਣ ਵਾਲੋ ਜੋ ਨਰ ਹੋਈ ਬਾਲ ਬਿਰਦ ਲਬ ਛੜੇ ਨਾ ਕੋਈ ਸਿੰਘਨ ਕੇ ਉਨ ਅੱਕ ਪਕੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਮਾਰਿਓ ਹਕੀਕਤ ਰਾਏ ਜੈਸੇ ਬਣਿਓ ਮਾਸ ਹਿਤ ਖਾਵਤ ਰੋੜ ਬਣਾਏ ਜਵੇ ਖਾਲਸੇ ਬਹੁਤ ਦੁਖ ਦਿਓ ਚਾਰ ਕੁੰਟ ਮੇ ਸ਼ੋਰ ਸੁਭਿਓ ਸੋ ਸ਼ੋਰ ਸੁਣਿਓ ਉਹ ਥਾਈ ਹੁਤੀ ਅਦਾਲਤ ਜੈ ਦਰਗਾਹੀ ਲਿਓ ਮੁਹੰਮਦ ਸਦ ਤਿੰਨ ਠਾਈ ਦਈ ਦੂਰ ਹੀ ਬੈਠਕ ਤਾਈ ਕਹਿਓ ਸੋ ਉਮਤ ਤੁਮਾਰੀ ਖਵਾਰ ਆਵੋ ਨਹ ਇਸ ਤੋਂ ਹਮ ਦਵਾਰ 1795 ਜ਼ਕਰੀਆ ਖਾਨ ਲਹੋਰਡਡ ਰੂਲ ਪਰਸੀਕਿਊਟਡ ਹੀਵਸ ਸਿੰਗਸ ਸਿਨਫੁਲ ਟਾਇਰੈਂਟ ਇਨ ਹਿਊਮਨ ਕਰੂਲ ਮਨੀ ਸਿੰਗ ਵਾਸ ਪੁਟ ਟੂ ਡੈਥ ਇਨਟੂ ਪੀਸਸ ਲਿਮਸ ਵਰ ਹੈਕਡ ਸਲੇਨ ਵਰ ਹਾਊ ਮੈਨੀ ਸਿੰਗਸ ਨੋ ਵਨ ਹੈਜ਼ ਅ ਕਾਊਂਟ ਐਗਜ਼ੈਕਟ ਸਮ ਵਰ ਟੋਰਚਰਡ ਸਮ ਵਰ ਹੰਗ ਕੈਨਨ ਫਾਦਰ ਐਂਡ ਨਾਈਫ ਬੇਟ ਸ਼ੈਟਰਡ ਵਿਦ ਕਲਬਸ ਵਰ ਸਮ ਹੈਡਸ ਡਰਾਊਂਡ ਐਂਡ ਡਰੈਗਡ ਸਚ ਟੋਰਚਰ ਗ੍ਰੇਟ ਬੈਰਡ ਹੈਂਗਡ ਵਿਦ ਮੈਚਲੋਕਸ ਬਲੋਨ countless thousands they were slain they were made to sit in lines heads were hacked with cruel disdain hacked were arms and hacked were legs gouged were eyes and flayed was skin all the men who had long hair young and old were killed akin mistaking him to be a sick killed the butchers hakikat rai as if lusting after meat the famished pebbles to eat cry limits all the oppression crossed hue and cry people supine by the cries the heavens rent petition heard in court divine summoned was prophet himself but the gates for him were closed look at what your followers wrought to let you in we're not disposed ratan singh pangul lamented the continuing repression unleashed by zakaria khan the poet imagined that the cries of the suffering were heard in the divine court and the response bara sadi to puri bhai abe sadi khalse ki ai tumhe burai boh kar lai ape lar mar jaho mukai ਜਬ ਹੁਕਮ ਭਇਓ ਕਰਤਾਰ ਦਿੱਲੀ ਸੂਬੇ ਭਇ ਖਵਾਰ ਆਪਸ ਮੇ ਵੇ ਫਟ ਗਲ ਗਏ ਬੁਲਾਵਤ ਨਾਦਰ ਆਪੇ ਭਏ ਐਂਡਿੰਗ ਨਾਓ ਇਜ਼ ਦ ਸੈਂਚਰੀ 12th ਦ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਸੈਂਚਰੀ ਇਜ਼ ਨਾਓ ਨਾਈ enough now ਆਫ ਯੂਰ ਈਵਲ ਡੀਡਸ ਫਾਈਟ ਅਮੰਗਸਟ ਯੂਰਸੈਲਫਸ ਐਂਡ ਡਾਈ this was thus the will divine suffering much would delhi see fight each other the muslims would ravage they would by nadar be nawab zakaria khan was a vassal of the mughal emperor muhammad shah a scourge was about to descend upon the mughal empire just a couple of notes on the dates bangu's reference to the year 1795 is according to the bikrami calendar which corresponds to 1738 CE 
When he refers to the end of the 12th century, he is using the Islamic calendar. The 12th century in the Hijri calendar corresponds to 1688 to 1785 CE. Muhammad Khan Turkman, Nadir Shah's envoy, had arrived in Delhi to present his credentials and to convey his master's request regarding the closing of the border to Afghan refugees. The emperor and his advisors were not quite sure how to react. They had of course known the mighty Safwids who had ruled Persia for 200 years and the Hotaks of the Ghislai clan after the fall of Isfahan. But who was this Nadir Shah who had besieged Kandahar? They were not even sure of the title by which Nadir Shah should be addressed. They decided to wait it out until the siege of Kandahar was concluded. Perhaps Shah Hussain would defeat Nadir Shah and the problem would simply go away. Muhammad Khan Turkoman, who asked for permission to leave, given the instructions from his monarch to stay no longer than 40 days, was told to stay put. Despite his weaknesses and his peccadilloes, Muhammad Shah, who is mostly remembered by his nickname Rangile or Colorful, was a man of great refinement and culture. In his employ were noted artists such as Nidhamal and Chitarman, who painted fabulous renderings of life in his court. His chief court musician, Niamat Khan, known by his pen name Sadarang, is celebrated to this day for his musical innovations and his compositions. Sadarang and his nephew Adarang were innovators of the khayal, which is the dominant genre of vocal North Indian classical music even today. Nidamal's paintings, which have survived, show Muhammad Shah Rangile, no more a young man, dressed in a woman's richly embroidered tunic and shoes embedded with pearls, presiding over some form of entertainment. The emperor's mornings were given to partridge and elephant fights, in the evening, jugglers and mimes dazzled the court with their artistry. Elaborate farces were enacted, and of course there were mehfils or soirees featuring musicians and dancers. It is safe to assume that Muhammad Khan Turkoman was not entirely reluctant to stay in Delhi. In fact, Lockhart writes about rumors that the envoy had become infatuated with a dancing girl, which might explain his tarrying in the Mughal capital. The siege of Kandahar was over, and a full year had passed since Muhammad Khan Turkoman had been sent to Delhi. Nadir Shah was infuriated by the lack of response from Muhammad Shah, which he interpreted as a slight. On May 21, 1738, Nadir Shah left Kandahar for Ghazni and a few days later crossed the frontier into Mughal territory. Nadir Shah's invasion of the Mughal Empire had begun. Lockhart suggests that there were likely other reasons for Nadir Shah's invasion of Mughal India. His constant campaigns had bankrupted the Persian Empire 
and depleted his forces, and there was really no significant revenue source that he could draw upon. The tremendous wealth of the Mughal Empire, as well as its weakness, was no secret to him. An expedition to Delhi would refill the coffers of the Persian state and would enable Nadir Shah to recruit legions of Uzbek and Afghan soldiers. Lockhart further suggests that treachery might have been involved. Historians such as Rustam Ali, author of Tariq-e-Hindi, suggest that both Nizamul Mulk and Sadat Khan might have invited Nadir Shah to invade Delhi to further their own interests. Muhammad Shah, never a capable leader, was further hampered by the various competing interests at his court. The Turani, or Central Asian faction, consisted of nobles who had emigrated from Samarkand. Muhammad Amin Khan, Chin Bahadur, had been the leader of the faction, and after his death, the vizier, Kamaruddin Khan, his son, took center stage. The vizier's cousin, Nizamul Mulk, while of course a Turani, was an honorable man and of an independent mind. Besides, he had spent most of his time in the Deccan, away from the intrigues of the imperial court, and he was far removed from the events in Delhi. The Persian faction was also very powerful, with Sadat Khan, the Nawab of Awadh, being its mainstay. The third faction consisted of Hindustani nobles, who, as opposed to the Tranis and the Persians, came from families that had roots in Mughal India. The most notable noble in this faction was Samsamuddala Khan Duran, who was the Bakshi, or military paymaster general. Ghazni and Kabul, which were under Mughal control, submitted to Nadir Shah by June 1738, but the Mughals did nothing in response. In November, Nadir Shah crossed the Khyber Pass, the pathway taken by many other great conquerors of the past who had invaded India. In December, Muhammad Shah commanded the vizier Kamaruddin Khan, Nizamul Mulk, and Samsamuddala Khan Duran to march and halt Nadir Shah's advance, giving them the sum of 10 million rupees for expenses. The army camped outside of Delhi for a month, wasting time. In January, the emperor learned that Nadir Shah had crossed the Indus River after taking Peshawar and had reached Atak. The court pinned its hopes on Nawab Zakaria Khan, the great enemy of the Sikhs and the governor of Lahore. Zakaria Khan, in the face of Nadir Shah's imminent arrival, had been begging for reinforcements and resources, but none had been forthcoming. The Persian army made steady progress, crossing the Jhelum and then the Chenab, plundering Vazirabad, Amnabad, and other towns on their route. Zakaria Khan, who had about 15,000 horsemen under his command, fought valiantly but was defeated. Nadir Shah treated his vanquished foe with great courtesy, offered a tribute of two million rupees, gold, elephants, and other gifts. Nadir Shah restrained his army from plundering Lahore and allowed Zakaria Khan to remain in his position as governor. Nasir Khan, the Mughal governor of Kabul and Peshawar, who had also fought the Persians, was similarly confirmed in his position. 
Already behaving like he was the emperor of India, Nader Shah remained in Lahore for 12 days. And during his stay, he learned that Muhammad Shah was readying his forces to oppose him. And he decided to write to him. In his letter, he wrote that he had nothing but friendly feelings towards the emperor. His quarrel was with the Afghans, at whose hand he claimed Hindustan had suffered as much as Persia. He had crossed the border to punish them, and he would not harm anyone if he was unopposed. His letter also contained a threat. If the Mughal army took the field against him, they would suffer the consequences. Nader Shah left Lahore on February 6th and arrived in Sarand 10 days later. There he learned about Muhammad Shah's movements. The Mughals had been paralyzed by infighting. Samsamuddala Khanduran, who had the greatest confidence in the valor of Rajputs, had been trying to rally Raja Jaising and other kings who had their own agendas and were intriguing with the Marathas to bring about a collapse of the Mughal Empire. Nizamul Mulk, the most capable of the Mughal noblemen, was completely sidelined because of the Khandaran's machinations. The Nizam's appeals to send reinforcements to Zakaria Khan fell on deaf ears. Desperate, Muhammad Shah even appealed to the Peshwa Bajirao for help. In January, he summoned Sadat Khan of Awadh to join him with his forces. True to his nature, Muhammad Shah tried other remedies as well. In the words of the historian Muhammad Kazim, Muhammad Shah, on hearing of Nader's impending invasion, summoned all the Kalandars, Darveshas, diviners and witches in his realm and told them of the Shah's terrible ways. The soothsayers and the witches then busily prepared spells to repel the invaders. One wizard said, We shall bind the hands of the enemy firmly at the time of battle. Another said, We shall recite a spell, and Nadir Shah will be brought bound hand and foot to the emperor's court. A Mughal force close to 100,000 left Delhi under the personal command of the emperor on January 29. On February 7, the army arrived at Panipat, which had been the site of two great battles that had been very significant in the history of the Mughals. The emperor decided to press on to Karnal, which was a further 20 miles north. The emperor's generals determined that Karnal would be a good place to dig in and wait for the arrival of Sadat Khan and the forces of Awadh. The nearby Ali Mardan Canal provided an abundant supply of water and a thick jungle to the north provided protection. A mud wall was quickly erected around the camp, which had a circumference of 14 miles. By then, Nader Shah was a mere 80 miles away at Sarand, from where he sent 6,000 Kurdish horsemen on a reconnaissance mission. On February 19th, the Shah arrived at Ambala, left his harem and his baggage train there, and marched to Shahbad, 35 miles from Karnal, the Kurds engaged the Mughal army, collected valuable information about the camp and the terrain, and went to Sarai Azimbad, a village 12 miles from the Mughal camp, to await Nadir Shah. 
After learning about the camp, the canal, and the forest, Nader Shah decided to move east to outflank the Mughals. If they emerged from the camp to engage him, his plan was to fight them on flat land that stretched between Karnal and the Jamuna River. If, on the other hand, they did not leave their entrenchments, he would march on to Panipat and then Delhi. News arrived that Sadat Khan had reached Panipat with 30,000 soldiers and was on his way to Karnal to join the imperial force. The Persians engaged him, but Sadat Khan managed to elude them and joined the emperor at Karnal with the rest of his force behind him. Sadat Khan was paying his respects to Muhammad Shah when he learned that the Persians were plundering his baggage. In a rage, he left the camp with less than 2,000 men to engage the Persians and recover his possessions. The Persians he encountered feigned flight, and the reckless Sadat Khan gave chase. The emperor, much perturbed, turned to his generals, Samsamuddala Khandran, who commanded the right flank, and Nizamul Mulk Asifja, who commanded the left flank, and declared that he would personally go to Sadat Khan's defense. Both the generals dissuaded him, saying that the time was not right to engage the Persians. When the emperor asked Nizamul Mulk for advice, he suggested that as the commander of the right flank, and hence closest to Sadat Khan, Samsamuddala should take the field. On the emperor's command, Samsamuddala rode out at the head of a force of 9,000 horsemen, brimming with confidence and eager to take on the Persians. This was the opportunity that Nader Shah had been waiting for. Nader Shah put on his coat of mail and his helmet and pulled together a thousand Afshar horsemen. He also readied an ambush with an additional 3,000 men and deployed two contingents, each 500 strong, of his crack jazerchis, or mounted matchlock men. The imperial force had been divided into three. On the rightmost side was Sadat Khan, whose forces came under withering fire from the Persian marksmen. Nader Shah's tactics included setting fires to mounds of naphtha to spook the Mughal elephants, Sadat Khan fought bravely, but his force took heavy casualties and his men gave ground. He himself was captured when his frightened elephant, out of control, ran into the Persian ranks. Now at the center of the imperial force was Samsamuddala Khandran. Nader Shah's forces mowed down his ranks with a hail of matchlock fire, in addition, he deployed jamburaks, or camel-mounted artillery, rendering the swords of the imperial cavalry completely ineffective. Samsamuddala's forces suffered great losses. His brother, son, and many other commanders were slain, and he too fell unconscious in his howdah, struck by a musket ball. Some of his men managed to bring him back to the Mughal camp. Muhammad Shah sent urgent messages to Nizamul Mulk to go to Samsamuddala's aid, but he took a defensive position close to the canal and sat there on his elephant, calmly drinking coffee, content to let Nadir Shah destroy his rival. 
by various estimates, 10,000 to 30,000 of the Mughal soldiers were butchered. Nadir Shah lost fewer than 2,500 men. In the evening, Nizamul Mulk went to see the injured Samsamuddala Khandran, in all likelihood to gloat. Samsamuddala had often insulted him at court, once even having compared him to a monkey. According to Lockhart, Samsamuddala Khandran on his deathbed whispered to Nizamul Mulk, We have completed our business. Do not let the emperor meet Nadir Shah or take Nadir to Delhi, but remove this bala or calamity from here by any means in your power. Meanwhile, Sadat Khan was produced before Nadir Shah, who questioned him on the emperor's wealth and forces. Sadat Khan advised him to summon Nizamul Mulk to negotiate. Muhammad Shah sent Nizamul Mulk to the Persian camp on February 25th to discuss the terms of settlement. Nizamul Mulk persuaded Nadir Shah to return to Persia in return for a payment of 5 million rupees to be sent in installments. It appeared that Muhammad Shah had averted disaster. Nadir Shah sent back an invitation to Muhammad Shah to join him for lunch the following day. An account of this meeting appears in the writings of the historian Anandram. This translation is taken from the History of India as told by its own historians, volume 8. Nasrullah Mirza, the Shah's son, received his majesty at the limits of the camp. When they drew near, the Shah himself came forth, and the etiquette, usual between the Persian and the Mughal courts, was faithfully observed. The two monarchs, holding one another by the hand, entered the audience tents and seated themselves side by side on a masnad or throne. It was as if two suns had risen in the east, or as if two bright moons shed their light at one time. As Muhammad Shah was unaccompanied by any one of his chiefs, the subject of conversation between the two emperors has remained unknown. After this had lasted some time, a feast was prepared, the remains of which were given to Amir Khan Bahadur and the other noblemen. Nothing that courtesy and friendship require was omitted during the whole conference, which lasted a quarter of the day, and Muhammad Shah regained his camp about the third quarter of the day. These proceedings restored tranquility to the minds of the soldiery, all looked forward with joy to renewed plenty, to a return to their beloved Shah Jahan Bad and the society of friends. But fate smiled at these fond hopes, for more suffering, more bloodshed awaited them. The tragedy that followed can be blamed on the rot that had set in the Mughal court, with the personal agendas of the noblemen trumping any sense of loyalty or duty. Samsamuddala Khandran was dead, and the post of the commander of the Mughal army lay vacant, as did the post of Mir Bakshi, the paymaster-in-chief. 
When Muhammad Shah appointed Nizam ul Mulk Mir Bakshi, Sadat Khan, who coveted the post, was beside himself. In a fit of jealous rage, he hastened to Nadir Shah's camp. Rustam Ali in the Tarihe Hindi writes Sadat Khan represented to Nadir Shah that the deceased Samsamuddala Khan Dran was the only person of importance in the government, and now there was no man in the kingdom equal to him in power or dignity, that Nadir Shah would contrive to take Muhammad Shah prisoner and make himself master of the country. Having no regard for gratitude, deluded by the base avarice of this world, and having no shame even for contradicting his own words, he occasioned the general slaughter and great contentions and disasters which ensued. Nadir Shah, having called Nizamul Mulk, placed him in custody and constrained him to send for the emperor. That wanderer in the forest of envy and malice without considering what might be the result, wrote a letter under his own hand to the effect that he had settled the terms of the peace and the confirmation of it depended upon his coming. The heedless emperor, being deceived by that artful person, rode to the tent of Nadir Shah, who ordered the few persons who had gone with the emperor to be turned out, and the emperor with Nizamul Mulk, Amir Khan, and the others to be placed in confinement. On March 12th, Nadir Shah left Karnal for Delhi with the emperor, his entourage following a couple of miles behind him. Sadat Khan, who Nadir Shah had appointed Vakil ul Mutallak, or Deputy of the Absolute, had been sent ahead accompanied by a Persian general with a command for the governor of Delhi. He was to hand over the keys to the fortress, treasuries, and storehouses to the Persian general Tamas Khan. were closely following the developments during Nadir Shah's march on Delhi, for there seemed to be an opportunity in the making. In the words of Ratan Singh Pangu, Hoye naash dwe dhirko ayo, hon khal se badho banayo, jim kantan ko kante nikaren, so kanta fir dijat daren, kahe singh ab sama so aya, Tho satgur yo bachan alaya, kabul te ik kutta mangaun, inka un te nash karaun, fir dakhan te liaun fauj, ladkar ik unhe mite kyon khoj, phir khal se bhuro mangaun, do khal se mail karaun, dilli lahore te takhat putaun, 
ਸਾਤੋਂ ਧਾਰਨ ਧੂੜ ਮਿਲਾਉਂ ਬਾਈ ਸੂਬੇ ਦੇਉ ਤੋੜ ਬਜੀਰ ਪਾਤਸ਼ਨ ਦਉਂ ਫੋੜ ਤੁਰਕ ਨਗਾਰੋ ਬਜਨ ਹਟਾਉਂ ਅਕਾਲ ਅਕਾਲ ਕੋ ਜਾਪ ਜਪਾਉਂ ਸੋ ਸਮੋ ਅਬ ਆਇਓ ਜਾਣੋ ਲੂਟੋ ਖਾਓ ਜੋ ਮਨ ਮਾਨੋ ਸਿੰਘਣ ਮੇ ਨਬਾਬ ਜੂ ਕਪੂਰ ਸਿੰਘ ਜੀ ਨਾਮ ਸਭ ਸਿੰਘਣ ਕੋ ਤਿਨ ਕਹੀ ਬੜੂ ਸਿੰਘਣ ਬੜ ਕਾਮ ਕਪੂਰ ਸਿੰਘ ਜਬ ਯੋ ਕਹੀ ਸਿੰਘਣ ਸਭੜ ਸੁਨਾਏ ਸਤ ਸਤ ਸਭ ਕਹਿ ਉਠੇ ਕੁਣਸ ਕਰ ਸਿਰ ਨਿਆਏ Turks were at each other's throats for Khalsa's came the time to rise one thorn used to pluck the other then it's time for its demise said the sings our time has come prophetic words of the guru true from kabul he summoned a dog his task was to mughals true from the south would come a host destined to mughals erase khalsa's in their humble robes destined they to them embrace delhi lahore they both will fall hill kingdoms seven will turn to dust mughal states all 22 kings advisers die they must bestilled will be the mughal drums akal akal they'll hear the chant know now that the time has come blunder and take all you want had the sings their own nawab kapoor singh was his name to the sings he had decreed shall be yours glory and fame when these words kapoor singh spoke heard the sings and they took heed he speaks sooth declared the sings it shall be as he decreed March 19 Muhammad Shah was permitted by Nadir Shah to enter his own capital Delhi so that he could make preparations for the conqueror's arrival The next day Nadir Shah entered the city with great pomp and show The streets were lined with troops and at the head of Nadir Shah's procession were a hundred elephants in whose howdahs perched Jazeer cheese armed with loaded matchlocks Nadir Shah himself followed on a stallion and when he reached the red ford cannons thundered in salute Muhammad Shah greeted Nadir Shah with flattery and expensive gifts and an elaborate banquet was arranged Nadir Shah courteously thanked the Mughal emperor and informed him that he was returning his kingdom to him because of the treaty that they had signed while at Karnal Muhammad Shah in return offered Nadir Shah the Mughal royal treasure and jewels in an elaborate charade Nadir Shah kept refusing the offer seeming to accept it with great reluctance after Muhammad Shah kept pressing him after the banquet Nadir Shah retired to the royal palace by the Diwan-e Khas or the small audience hall while Muhammad Shah retired to humbler quarters the next day Sadat Khan died 
Some historians suggest that he succumbed to the injuries he sustained in battle. Others suggested that he might have committed suicide. Rustam Ali offers this most interesting account. It is narrated that one day Nadir Shah in his public court spoke some harsh and abusive words to Nizamul Mulk and Sadat Khan and threatened them with punishment. When they left the court, Nizamul Mulk, with all the lying and fraud to which he was naturally habituated, spoke to Sadat Khan some very soft and heart-rending words and told him that it would now be difficult to escape the hands of the tyrant. He advised that they both should at the same moment go home and taking a cup of deadly poison pursue the path to death and sacrifice their lives to their honor. After this, the chief of deceivers went to his house and having expressed his will to his relations and drunk a cup of water mixed with sugar, covered himself with a sheet and went to sleep. Sadat Khan, who was a true soldier and was not aware of his perfidy, as soon as he heard this, drank a cup of poison and went on to the next world. The same afternoon, Nadir Shah paid a courtesy visit to Muhammad Shah. By nightfall, rumors started circulating that there had been an attempt on Nadir Shah's life and that he had been shot. A riot broke out in Delhi and mobs roamed the streets, looting and killing any Persian soldiers they could find. Some of the Mughal nobles, emboldened by the news that Nadir Shah was dead, killed the Persian guards who had been deployed at their homes to protect them. By various estimates, more than 3,000 Persian soldiers were put to the sword. Anandaram, who was present in Delhi, documents what happened next. On the morning of the 11th, an order went forth from the Persian emperor for the slaughter of the inhabitants. The result may be imagined. One moment seemed to have sufficed for universal destruction. The Chandni Chok, the fruit market, the Dariba Bazaar and the buildings around the Masjid-e-Jama were set on fire and reduced to ashes. The inhabitants, one and all, were slaughtered. Here and there some opposition was offered, but in most places people were butchered, unresisting. The Persians laid violent hands on everything and everybody, cloth, jewels, dishes of gold and silver, were acceptable spoils. The author beheld these horrors from his mansion, situated in the Vakilpura Muhalla outside the city, resolved to fight to the last if necessary, and with the help of God to fall at least with honor. But the Lord be praised, the work of destruction did not extend beyond the above-named parts of the capital. Since the days of Timur, who captured Delhi and ordered the inhabitants to be massacred up to the present time, a period of 318 years, the capital has been free from such visitations. The ruin in which its beautiful streets and buildings were now involved was such 
that the labor of years could not alone restore the town to its former state of glory. An anguished Muhammad Shah sent Nizamul Mulk and Kamruddin Khan to Nadir Shah to beg for mercy. That was when the bloodletting stopped after six hours of mayhem. Thousands of Delhi residents were slaughtered and the streets remained littered with corpses for days. Nadir Shah ordered Haji Fulad Khan, the Kotwal or chief constable of Delhi, to collect and burn the bodies. Hindus and Muslims alike were cremated. Thousands of corpses were thrown into the Yamuna River. Nadir Shah's next task, as he readied to return, was to collect the treasures that he would be carrying back with him. On March 25th, he dispatched a proclamation to Persia announcing that all provinces would be exempt from taxation for three years. His soldiers, officers, and camp followers were richly rewarded. Anandram provides a sense of the wealth that Nadir Shah was carrying back to Persia. All the regal jewels and property and the contents of the treasury were seized by the Persian conqueror in the citadel, he thus became possessed of the treasure to the amount of 60 lakhs of rupees and several thousand sharfis, plate of gold to the value of one crore of rupees, and the jewels, many of which were unrivaled in beauty by any in the world and were valued at about 50 crores. The peacock throne alone, constructed at great pains in the reign of Shah Jahan, had cost one crore of rupees. Elephants, horses, and precious goods, whatever pleased the conqueror's eye, more indeed than can be enumerated, became his spoil. In short, the accumulated wealth of 348 years changed masters in a moment. In addition to the looting of the royal treasury, a levy of 20 million rupees was assessed on Delhi and the Mughal nobles were tasked with collecting the funds from the citizens of Delhi. Nizamul Mulk and Vazir Kamruddin Khan each were made to pay 3 million rupees and 10 million rupees was extracted from the province of Avad, ruled by the late Sadat Khan. On May 12th, Nadir Shah held a grand darbar or court to which Muhammad Shah and all the Mughal nobles were invited. Nadir Shah placed a crown on Muhammad Shah's head and offered him a belt and a sword embellished with jewels. He also conferred rich robes upon all the nobles. Muhammad Shah formally ceded all his territories west of the Indus River to Nadir Shah and a document was drawn to that effect. On May 16th, Nadir Shah left Delhi, accompanied by an enormous baggage train of mules and camels carrying the spoils of his very successful campaign. With him went hundreds of elephants, thousands of horses, and many young women and men who had been enslaved. Mounted on an Iraqi horse, a red cap on his head with a jeweled agarette, a white Kashmiri shawl wound around his cap 
one of the greatest conquerors that the world would ever know rode out of the shattered capital of the once mighty Mughal Empire. In the words of Dr. Lockhart, Muhammad Shah was thus once more a sovereign, but his kingdom had shrunk. And his commander-in-chief and many thousands of his soldiers and subjects had been slain. Further, his jewels were gone, his treasuries were empty, and his prestige, which his own indolence and weakness had done much to injure, had been still further impaired. Before leaving Delhi, Nadir Shah sent Hayatullah Khan, the son of Nawab Zakaria Khan of Lahore, accompanied by Abdul Baki Khan with instructions. Nawab Zakaria Khan was to collect a levy of 10 million rupees from the citizens of Lahore and present it to him when he arrived in the Punjab. The Nawab, on receiving the instructions, issued dire warnings to the nobles, merchants, and bankers of Lahore. Word of the massacre in Delhi had spread, and Lahore would be spared only if the levy was collected. In Jeevan Brithant, Nawab Kapoor Singh, Baba Prem Singh writes that Nawab Kapoor Singh convened the Buddha Dal and the Tarna Dal to deliberate upon the Sikh response to the invasion of Nadir Shah. In a fiery speech, he thundered that neither the Rajputs, who had been men of valor, nor the Marathas, who were also much respected for their bravery, had done anything to oppose the invader, who would soon pass through the homeland of the Sikhs on his way back to Persia. The Mughals, he said, had become so weak and corrupt that nothing could be expected of them. Perhaps the Sikhs were the only ones who could show Nadir Shah that there were still men of honor left in India who were ready to sacrifice themselves for their homeland. The warriors roared back, swords raised, and a plan was made. Nawab Kapoor Singh decreed that every second or third night, Sikhs would raid the camp of the retreating Persians choosing a different time during each attack and attacking from a different direction. Their mission would be to relieve the Persians of whatever spoils they could and free their captives. As Nadir Shah marched north, his men suffered in the intense heat. Also, the countryside between Sarand and Lahore that they had traveled through to get to Delhi had been ravaged and depleted of grain and fodder, Nadir Shah took a detour to the north to travel to the foothills of the Shivaliks, where Kapoor Singh's warriors were lying in wait. George Forster, in his journey from Bengal to England, writes, The Sikh forces appeared in arms at the period of Nadir Shah's return from Delhi, when the Persian army, encumbered with spoil and regardless of order, was attacked in the rear by detached 
predatory parties of Sikh cavalry who occasionally fell upon the baggage guards and acquired a large plunder. Nadir Shah was received by Nawab Zakriya Khan at Chakgard on the banks of the Ravi, not too far from Lahore. Zakriya Khan paid more than the tribute that had been demanded and Nadir Shah was much pleased. The governorship of Multan was also conferred upon Zakriya Khan by Nadir Shah. Several districts such as Gujarat and Sialkot, which had been under the governor of Kabul and Peshawar, were made over to Zakriya Khan as well for an additional annual tribute of 2 million rupees. Dr. Teja Singh and Dr. Ganda Singh write that Nadir Shah, who had been hugely irritated by the raids of the Sikhs, and perplexed by their audacity, questioned Nawab Zakaria Khan about them. Ratan Singh Pangu imagines the dialogue between Nadir Shah and Nawab Zakaria Khan. Pucheo Nadir ne Khanu aaye, hamko luttan haar bataaye, jin lutt khayo hamro raha, mulk usay ki uraadeo swaha, tab khanu ne aes bakhani, Muluk usay ko nah nishani, khade sove aur chalate khaan, neh baithe ve kite giraan, noon ghirt ko swad na jane, ham dukh dewe ve sukh maane, haad na din bhar piwe paani, siyale rakhe na agn nishani, neh khawe ve pisiyo naaj, lade bhoat ve karke bhaj, एक होए ता सौ सौ लरे मरने ते वे मूल न डरे रहे चाओ उन मरण को दीन मजब के भाए हम मारत उन थक गए उन घटतना कित हूँ जाए फिर नादर खानू पूछियो वे उम्मत कह पीर कह वे आपे ते वधे तो वे होए तगीर तब खानू ने सब कहो गुरु नानक को प्रकाश करा मात भी बहु कही जन्म सो साखी भाख जिम उन नानक संगत मारी जिम जिम इन मो करो खुवारी जिम जिम लीनी कुरास मात जिम सतगुरु सो कीनो घात पुछ पुछ नादर सब सुन लयो सबो भेत तब खानू दयो तेग बहादुर जिम सिर दयो जिम कर चार सजादे रहयो तब नादर सुन सीस हिलायो अपनो कीनो तब तुम पायो सो अब जीते जावे नाही जिनके साहिब आप पनाही सत्रह से छियानवे नादर गयो कंधार खान बहादुर खिज तबे धरी सिंगण फिर मार एस नादर शाह जकरिया खान हु नवाब आर दीज ब्रिगेंड्स बोल्ड माय बैगेज ट्रेन दे डेयर्ड वे ले विल बी डिस्ट्रॉयड देयर होम एंड होल्ड दस रिप्लाइड देन जकरिया खान in one land they do not dwell sleep on their feet move as they eat where they live no one can tell 
salt and butter to them unknown, cheerfully face trouble dire, seek water not in summer heat, in winter seek not warmth or fire, need not they to grind their grain, their nimble in the battlefield, one hundred each of them fights, not even to death they yield, ready they are to death embrace, for their faith and for their creed, at most I tried to them erase, they multiply, they won't recede. Master, which do these men serve? Tell me, says Nadar Shah, speak. Are their numbers all their own, or to grow do they convert seek? Zakaria Khan then told the tale of Guru Nanak's life and advent, told him of his glorious deeds, the saga of a life well spent, tales of how the six were killed, of how the six had borne the pain, of how they had been set upon, of how the gurus had been slain, drank it all in Nadar Shah, Zakaria Khan held nothing back, how Guru Teg Bahadur fell on the guru's sons, the vile attack, then Nadir Shah shook his head. You have reaped as you have sown. These men you will never defeat. Their master he protects his own. 1796 to Kandahar. Then Nadir went, frustrated, angry Zakaria Khan, to slay the six again hell-bent. Five months that Nadir Shah had been in India, both Delhi and Punjab remained in a state of great turmoil. Under the leadership of Nawab Kapoor Singh, Pag Singh, and Jassa Singh Aluwalia, the Sikhs, emboldened by the collapse of the civil government, roamed the plains of northeastern Punjab, plundering with impunity. They built a mud fort at Dalewal in a dense forest northwest of Amritsar, which served as their headquarters. After the departure of Nadir Shah, Nawab Zakaria Khan set about the task of re-establishing order in Punjab. He encouraged farmers to return to their lands and set up several grain markets, temporarily suspending taxes. Viewing the Sikhs as the most significant source of lawlessness in his realm, he resumed his repressive measures. The fort at Dalewala was raised, and in the face of repeated attacks from Lahore, the Sikh warriors left the Dwab, the region between the Ravi and the Bias, and moved eastwards to the Jalandar Dwab. On the surface, it might have seemed that life in the Punjab had returned to a semblance of normal after the departure of Nadir Shah. However, the collapse of Delhi and the weakening of its hold over the Punjab presented a great opportunity for the Sikhs. 
and they were ready. The Story of the Six is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of Night of the Restless Spirits, a collection of short fiction that examines the tumultuous events of 1984 from many different angles. His previous book, The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, tells the stories of many colorful characters who populated the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. The Story of the Six is produced by Almost Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh. This episode features a rendition of Raga Shuddha Kalyan on violin by Praveen Shiolikar, with tabla accompaniment by Supreet Deshpand. Season 3 of Story of the Six is sponsored by the Chardi Kala Foundation, the Sawney Family Foundation, and Manpreet Kaur and Ishdeep Singh. I'm co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>